in the 1890s, there was a group of Christians. Um, they were from a particular denomination. I won't name names. Um, it was ours. <laughs> and and they, they called them, well, it is called now the Holy Flesh Movement. It was a group of people who, uh, they, they really believed that they could achieve perfection. And, uh, and, and, of course, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, so they, they sought um, what was really a, a fanatical um, revelation of the Holy Spirit. They wanted a physical manifestation. And so they would get together and they would sing and pray and, and uh, uh, do some interesting things. Uh, and and one of, when, when one of them would fall down on their face usually, or however, they, they would be uh, considered as though they'd gone through the Gethsemane experience and been perfected. And at that moment, they were ready for translation. You know, if Jesus came that moment, they'd be ready to go to heaven. And uh, so they sought this, this uh, Gethsemane experience. Uh, but if you're looking from the outside at this experience, there's a lot of things that raise questions and doubts. A faithful Bible student shouldn't be taken in by this ruse. Uh, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. We all have kind of a struggle with this question. What is it to live a godly life? How does it work with the whole idea of salvation? Um, when am I ready for heaven? There's a lot of people in uh, the, our company, our particular family of Christians, that wonder if maybe they can't be confident that they're actually saved. And, and they think, well, I'm, I'd like to be ready for heaven, but I don't know that I'm ready right now. Let's, let's take a look at a, a couple of Bible verses. Luke chapter 6. Uh, we'll do a little review. Last week we introduced... Not, uh, we're, we're having, uh, by the way, a little bit of a... Uh, learning moment in our AV booth. We have some new people up there. So thank you for going through the, the struggle of learning our, our system. Um, if you wouldn't mind making sure that the uh, Proclaim application is selected, then this will work again. <laughs> well, it should. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so last time I preached, I introduced a new series called Fruit or Root, and just a two-part series. Last time it was about victory. What is sin and what does it mean to have victory? And uh, we read this verse from Luke chapter 6. It says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush." So this is the, the foundation, the idea. Um, what's the fruit? You get the fruit from the kind of tree that you have. Matthew seven sixteen, Jesus is pointing to um, religious leaders that are, well, they're not, excuse me, they're not really following God. And he says that you will know them. You'll recognize if they're godly or not by their fruit. The tree produces the fruit. And we can get distracted with uh, trying to fix the fruit problem. Right, we see a bad fruit in our life, and we go and we try to pluck it off. And, and it kind of works for a while. We get this uh, maybe morally better life. A lot of people will tell me, oh, I've, 
I'm pretty good. I've knocked on a bunch of people's doors, random strangers trying to sell them some good Christian books, and, uh, and I get lots of interesting uh, ideas about religion, and, and that's a common thought. Like, I'm pretty good. I don't kill people. I don't lie very much, at least not about big things. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty good, and uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, everything's fine with me, right? Well, the problem is we have bad hearts, right? They're the things that come out of our hearts... Um, <clears throat> they demonstrate that um, we, we don't have goodness in us, innately in us. And yeah, you might not do some morally bad things, but you still have envy and greed and lust and ambivalence and all kinds of other things in your heart that you need to deal with. So we, we discussed this, and, and um, I pointed out the problem being the heart, we need a heart transplant. We need something new. Ezekiel 36 tells us that he will, God will transplant our heart. He'll take the stony heart out of, our, um, out of us and give us a heart of flesh, right? And he, he'll cause us to walk in his statutes and to do them. And uh, last time I showed you this graph. Um, there we go. The graph that has Christ's righteousness way up at the ceiling and, uh, and us way down at the floor. <clears throat> and and the, the thing I, I wanted to point out about this is that at the time of baptism, the time when you surrender your heart to Jesus, you're ready for heaven because of Christ's righteousness. He imputes His righteousness to us. That's a weird theological term. It just means that He looks at us and He says, oh, look, you've got Christ's righteousness on you. You're ready for heaven. Right then, right there, Without anything that you've ever done, you're ready for heaven. And, and that's the case for the rest of your life. You are always ready for heaven when you are in a surrendered state to Christ. If, if your life is Christ's, he's got you. His righteousness covers you. You are good for heaven, translation ready. This is, this is a struggle that we have, though, because we look at that bottom line and we're like, look, it's going up. I see improvements, and I've seen a bunch of these um, graphs online. You're looking at different ideas, different churches, the Nazarene church or the Methodist or this or that, and everybody has a little bit different version of this. Um, At what point are you saved or lost, and, you know, how does righteousness or sanctification work? And all these interesting questions come into place when you put a graph on on the screen like this. But my one point that I want to make in this graph is that Christ's righteousness, because of His death, He can give you His righteousness if you ask Him and allow Him. And we'll look at that in just a second. But, but this, this graph is a graph of growth. God wants you to be a growing person, right? Victory over sin is surrender to Christ. And that was kind of the point we were making. And uh, I, I pointed out these three principles. The principle of knowing we find in Romans chapter 6. The principle of knowing. I know that I am God's child. That's really important to know who you are. And I know what God's promises are. He's promised that He will complete the work He started in me. He's promised that uh, we are more than conquerors through Christ, right? I know His promises. Knowing is really important. Uh, Another principle in Romans 6 is resisting. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's important that we set our will towards following Christ. What is the power of the will? We talked about it last time, and that was the power to choose. God gives us the power to choose. And who do we submit ourselves to? Who do we surrender ourselves to is the question 
in uh, resisting. So when we resist the devil, we're saying, I'm surrendering myself to Jesus. And when we don't resist the devil, we're saying, I'm surrendering myself to the devil and all the, you know, principles of his kingdom. And the third principle is the pursuing principle. And that's that we, that we submit ourselves to Christ and, and chase after him through Bible study and prayer and things like that. Um, so that, that was last time. That was the summary of what we studied last time and the idea of victory. But the question is, what about, what about the fruit does God expect us to bear fruit of righteousness? Or when we're saved, are we covered by Christ's righteousness and good to go? Doesn't really matter. This question is kind of what brought those um, precious people who fell into a fanatical theology in the holy flesh movement to think that they needed to pursue perfection. What is the role of righteousness, spiritual fruit. There's a story um, of this holy flesh movement about a guy, um, a, a religious leader in said denomination, came to visit this man, and uh, he was propping his feet up on the coffee table and sitting, lounging in his chair, talking to the to the religious leader that was there in his home. And, and, and he was sending his wife in to get him some, some water and his daughter um, over on some other chore. And, and the way he was talking to them wasn't really nice. Uh, it, it was as though he thought because he had gone through this Gethsemane experience and his wife and children hadn't, that he was ready for heaven and they were still lowly sinners. He was righteous and deserved to be served and they were unrighteous and deserved to be the servants. By their fruit, you will know them. What kind of fruit does that sound like to you? Does it sound like he'd achieved perfection on earth? Or was there a root of sin still in his life? He, he didn't have a righteous experience. Um, and I would suggest that that man, thinking that he was righteous, he was bearing his own works, right? You think about it. I've got two options. Um, either my record in heaven is mine to bear, or I give it to Jesus. Now, when Jesus bears my record, then, then all of the sin that, that's been coming from my life is on the cross. And when I bear it, saying, oh, I'm pretty righteous, look at me, I'm ready for heaven, you know what? I'm with the group in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, where it says that they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment there, and they are judged out of the book from the works that they have done. I've got two options. Either Christ bears my record or I do. And this man, he was, he was bearing his own record. He was going to deal with his own sins his own way. And ultimately, that would just lead him to the second death. There's no, there's no solution in the holy flesh movement. And it seems, it seems foolhardy to think that way, to think, I'm ready for heaven. Like, it seems like that's not really the wisest way to approach my walk with God. But, but there's this contradiction in experience. Jesus' righteousness makes us perfect. But then what about my lived experience? Am I giving my life to Jesus and then just 
well, it doesn't matter. Does he, he leave me in the, the struggle with sin? I want to say this. We will never in all eternity be fit for heaven because of our own righteousness. I, I said that in an interesting way. I didn't say that we will never in all our life be fit for heaven because of our own righteousness. I'm saying for all eternity, we will be under the cross of Christ. The only reason we'll ever be in heaven, however long we will have been there, however long we will be perfect, will be because Jesus' blood covers our sin. And forever we can sing the song of redemption. Paul describes this contradiction in experience, though, where Jesus' blood covers me, I'm perfect, ready for heaven, and yet I don't live like I should be in heaven today. In Romans chapter 7, he says, verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And in verse 19, he says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the lived experience of a Christian. And how, how do we reconcile that with the perfect life that God has granted us? Immediately after saying this, Paul points what, um, this idea that uh, it is Christ who covers us. And it, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word in is important in this verse. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hmm. A few verses later, he adds this and kind of gives the believer in Jesus a next step. And he says in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And in the context, when he's saying set the mind on the flesh, he's basically talking about what we're talking about in this context of overcoming sin. He says, if you set your mind on overcoming sin, plucking the fruit of bad fruit off of your life, then that is a good recipe for death. It's just going to be that game of whack-a-mole. You solve one problem and another one pops up. You're not dealing with the problem in the way it needs to be dealt with. In other words, the only path that leads anywhere but death is to set our mind on Christ, to set our mind on the Spirit. Now, this, this idea of setting our mind is... It's connected to the word submit. And I want you to think about this word as kind of an active word. We, we think of submit as to lay down and allow it to happen. <laughs> That's not what the Bible is thinking when it says submit. Submit is the power of the will to choose. Uh, to, to say, I choose Christ is to submit to him. I choose to allow you to, to, to do this in my life. And then when he says, go here or do this or don't do that, we say, I choose to obey. That's submit, to submit to the Holy Spirit. And we need to submit to the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8.14, uh, Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, uh, you have to submit in order to be led, right? All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. He put sons in there, but, but the idea is daughters too. So we're, we're going to say children of God. If you submit to the Holy Spirit, you are a child of God. The other, the other day, I asked one of my children, I can't remember which, um, if you disobey, 
shouldn't I just send you away from the house, have you find another place to live? And they thought I was just being silly. Of course I was. Um, and and they, they chuckled and, and they, they giggled a little bit and they were like, no. And I said, why not? And they said, because I'm your child. Like, it wasn't just because I loved them. It's just because they have an entitlement to my home. They're my child. My home is theirs. And however much I think that it will be otherwise, it will be theirs all of their lives. They'll be able to come back to my home. I, I, I have this plan. Uh, you know, they, they go to college and that's the end. They, I'm going to turn their room into a craft room or something, you know. But that is not my wife's idea. Um, <laughs> and, and her idea will be more likely to happen than mine. So, um, but, but their idea is when they, because they're my child, they live in my home. My home is theirs to own. I, I keep reminding them, um, like, that's my door. You do not slam my door. <laughs> um, you know, it, this is my property. Um, but they don't seem to, it, it doesn't connect with them that my property is different from their property. I don't know if your, your kids ever had this problem. <laughs> when you think about it, a child owns an inheritance in their parents' possessions in their parents' home. So if you're a child of God, where do you live? Where do you belong? Think about that. Turn to John 15, and I want you to imagine yourself in that upper room. The disciples had just done the the Passover meal. They had participated in the first communion service. Jesus had washed their feet. And uh, and Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. That word vine is the same exact concept as the illustration he used in Luke chapter 6 when he said, a bad tree produces bad fruit and a good tree produces good fruit. I am the true vine. I'm the true tree. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus begins with this concept of a tree and fruit bearing. What's the expectation for a Christian based on this verse? The expectation is that we bear fruit because we abide in Jesus. Okay? So look at the next verse, verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He had just gone through this process of the foot washing and the communion service, and he says, you're clean. Why are they clean? Because Jesus has made them clean. The the ceremony of the foot washing symbolized the Holy Spirit washing their lives, and the, the, the symbol of the communion service symbolized Jesus' blood being a replacement for their sin. They're clean spiritually in Christ. And then verse 4, he says, abide in me. That word abide, what does that word mean? It means to live, right? It means to belong. Where, where, where does the child of God belong? In, in God's house, right? Jesus makes this just a bit more intimate. And he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So children live in their father's house. 
Uh, but Jesus says his children live in him. Now, the picture he wants us to get is as though we were dead branches, shriveled and ready for the fire. And Jesus came and he took us from the ground, worthless and dead. And then he grafted us into him. Who is the good tree? A bad tree produces bad fruit, but who is the good tree? Jesus is the good tree. Are you the good tree? (laughs) No, you're a branch grafted into the tree. The only goodness that you can get is when you're in Jesus. Grafted into him because of his wonderful grace and his power. He he says, I want you to be in me. And, And who does the grafting? Do I do the grafting? No, Jesus does the grafting. I allow it. I'm like, yeah, please pick me up. I'd really rather not be dead anymore. Can you put me, put me in you? And Jesus says, sure. And he puts me in him, grafts me into the vine, the, the, the tree. And because of his life and, and his life flowing through me, I can produce good fruit. Will that good fruit ever be mine? Could I ever own that good fruit? I did this. It was, it was me. Finally, I've achieved it. I can, I can make good fruit now. It's kind of a silly thought, isn't it? When you're in Christ, he's the power that makes the fruit happen. You get the fruit from the root. I'm going to say it again. You get the fruit from the root. Are you in Christ or are you doing your own thing? If you're doing your own thing, you're just a bad tree and and you're not going to produce good fruit. It won't happen. But in Christ, you can produce good fruit because of him. To be in Christ is to be grafted into eternal life. And, and, and we can take ownership, confidence in that eternal life. Can, can we ever be, um, let me say it differently, can Jesus ever fail in his job of saving people? No. Bible said many times, is my arm short or something that I can't save? <laughs> God is powerful and will save you. That's his job. In John 15, 26, um, Jesus adds to this object lesson the real lived experience. He says, when the helper comes, who's the helper? He says, the spirit of truth. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And, and then in verse Um, John chapter 16, verse 8, it says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And just a few verses later in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. There's there's something about this abide in me that's connected with the spirit. Um, We abide in him, he abides in us through the spirit. And later on in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says it this way, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Jesus started John 15 by saying, If you abide in me, that's the grafting. That's when we say, Okay, Jesus, please take me as your child. And he puts us inside him and his life flows through us. But then the and I abide in you part is about us surrendering to the Holy Spirit. This, This is the active work of our life. The thing that Christians do is to surrender to God's Spirit. Back to the holy flesh people. Uh, This idea of 
uh, manifestation of the Spirit in our lives became a big deal in the early 1900s. It was the 1890s, the Holy Flesh movement kind of fizzled, at least in our denomination. But then in the 1900s, it kind of grew up everywhere else. This particular book I'm showing on the screen is written by John Wesley, Entire Sanctification or Christian Perfection. And it is the, the motivating factor behind many of this, these movements, this idea of, of well, entire sanctification or, or perfection of our character here on earth has, has been a struggle. It might have been a struggle in your life as we relate to this subject of sanctification. What does it mean? And, and this holy flesh movement kind of morphed into what we know today as the holiness movement or the Pentecostal holiness movement. And it's seeking this, this physical manifestation of God in our lives, if I'm supposed to dwell in God and God's Spirit is supposed to dwell in me, then, then what's, the, what's the thing that I can know that God's Spirit is in me? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it wealth? What, what is it that says that uh, God's Spirit is in me? Maybe the power to heal others. Um, or, or maybe it's that falling on the ground, being smitten by the Spirit, as they say. Maybe that's the, the thing that indicates the Spirit's in my life. Is the Spirit in your life is the question I want you to think about. Do you have God's Spirit? What's the evidence that you would know that God's Spirit is abiding in you? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, and this is the evidence. What happens when you are in Christ and His Spirit is in you is you bear fruit. What kind of fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. This is the result of the Spirit in your life. Let's do a quick summary. The problem of sin isn't just an outward works thing, a behavioral thing. It's a heart problem, right? We've got the wrong root in our lives, and we need a different heart. When we tell him he can, Jesus takes us and grafts us into him, giving us a new heart. Who's the new heart? I don't know if you caught that. Um, when we need a new heart, right? Our tree is bad. We need a new tree. So when, he, when we say he can, Jesus takes us, the dead branch, ready for the fire, and he grafts us into him. Who's the new heart? Jesus is the heart of flesh. Hmm. And he saves us from both the judgment and he attributes his righteousness to us. So it's as though his righteousness is ours because we're in him, making us perfectly fit for heaven. And Jesus then puts his spirit within us, the power to walk according to him. And the spirit transforms our hearts and produces fruit in our life. That's, that's the summary. That's how it works. And so I want to say this again. Jesus is the only one who can save us. We will never, ever, ever in all eternity be saved or fit for heaven because of what we can do. And yet he doesn't want us to just live in the misery of the sin that we have. Sin is a miserable thing. You do something and it has results, right? Um, you smoke and you get problems physically, right? Um, you you um, run around with... Uh, uh, the ladies or the men in inappropriate ways, and there's going to be consequences in your life. 
emotional, relational, physical consequences. That's just the reality. Sin will lead to bad things. And God doesn't want us to live in an environment with bad things. And so His Spirit begins to transform us and change us into His image to become like Christ. I think that's why Paul said to the Corinthians and, or the Colossians in Colossians 1.27, the riches of the glory of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The book of Titus puts it this way, for, by grace, for, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. Uh, his righteous life and spotless death is what purifies us, not our own works, but the process of living in Christ and the Spirit living in us is God training us like children. My child does not get booted out of the house because they, they backtalk me. Sometimes I want to send them out and close the door and just say, do that out there for a while. But that's, that's not, uh, my, my attitude is not that you're no longer my child because you backtalked me. God's job is to grow us. It's his job to grow us. I'm going to say that a third time. God's job is to grow us. Okay? Don't take on you what God has taken on himself. God is the divine pruner, you might say. See, we're connected to Jesus, but there are parts of our branch that have dead things on them. And in order for fruit to grow, he needs to prune some of those things off. And then we have two options. When, when the divine pruner comes to our hearts and says that needs to go, we have two options. One is to resist and to cling to our sin. Um, children can sometimes do this when you want to develop some you know, maturity in them. Uh, they, they can resist and, and um, pout and mm, kick and scream. Ultimately, if we resist, if we continue to resist, we will be pruned off of the vine of Christ and back to where we started in the fire. That, that's the ultimate end. But God is a patient father. It's not something that happens immediately. He comes back again and again and again and again and again and again to that issue. Remember, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Why? Because he's surrendering to Jesus. Your victory is not in that one victory over sin. Your victory is in returning to Jesus every time. And letting, letting the Holy Spirit do the work that he has said he'd do. The pruning work. So he'll come back to that issue again and again and again until we accept it or completely refuse it. And now if we accept, that's the second option. Uh, and, and the quicker we accept it, the better our lives are going to be, right? Uh, so we surrender, and he prunes that area of our life. He prunes our hearts. If we don't accept quickly, that part of our life gets bigger, and the pruning shears have to get bigger. It hurts a bit more. And, and can I be honest with you? It is so much easier in life if we focus on dealing with the fruit if we can just pluck the fruit off of our lives, deal with a little bit of moral niceness and, and uh, try to deal with that, you know, it's just so we look good, 
That doesn't require a ton of sacrifice. But when we surrender to God and allow Him to prune us, it cuts to the core of our being and sometimes feels like He's making us, like like a piece of who we really are is being taken out. Hmm. Hebrews 4.11 describes it this way. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What word is that? That rest. This is what submission to God is. We say, okay, God, and he cuts out parts of our lives. And, and Paul in, in the book of Hebrews is describing this work as a Sabbath work, rest. This, in fact, is what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is a sign that God is the one who sanctifies you. Okay? The, the ultimate example of righteousness by faith and grace is the Sabbath rest. He says, therefore, there remains, therefore, uh, or sorry, a Sabbath rest. Therefore, let us strive to enter that Sabbath rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Uh, the disobedience, by the way, was the Israelites not willing to go into the, the um, promised land. They weren't willing to submit. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. The word of God pierces deep. And then it says this, no creature is hidden from his sight. Do you feel like you're hiding things from God sometimes? You aren't. You aren't. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees you. He knows exactly who you are. And he just comes and he gently says, can I prune this part of your life? Would you like to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Not just a nice personality, but a genuine love for others. Not just a smile on your face, but a deep abiding peace and joy. Not just holding your tongue from gossip, but genuinely thinking well of others. Not just refraining from alcohol or overeating, but exercising good judgment and temperance in all things. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know anybody who doesn't want a good life. Freedom from the miseries that sin causes. Notice from this verse that God already sees you. There's nothing hidden from you. So, so stop withholding. Stop hiding. Stop running. Just submit. Enter the rest. The rest that God has designed for you through the pruning of His Spirit. In salvation and in victory over sin, you and I have one job. It's to align our will with the will of Christ. It's to choose to submit ourselves to Him. That's our job. I submit to you. In this moment, I submit to you. Yep, in that moment too, I submit to you. Oh, I failed. I'm submitting again. That's our job. Our job is to surrender. 1 John 1, 9 describes it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess. That is surrender. God does the work of transformation. That's God's job. And he says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful. He'll stick with it until the day of Jesus Christ. Won't you surrender to Jesus today? What are you holding back? Will you give it to Jesus now? He already knows. He just needs you to allow him to take it over. And if you haven't been grafted into the vine, as Jesus puts it, if you haven't 
begun that journey of abiding with Christ, that I'd encourage you to say yes to Jesus today. And it takes a simple surrender that says, Jesus, I want you to be my tree. (laughs) I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want my life to be found in you. And he will take you and he will do the work. And from that moment and every moment after that, you're ready for heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our substitute. And thank you for being our vine dresser, our pruner, that trains us up in you. Thank you for giving us your spirit, the power behind living a godly life. Lord, we want to say right now that we want to be your children and bear the fruit of your spirit. Please do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me as we sing our closing hymn?